Church, if you could please open up to the book of Micah, book of Micah, chapter 4. We're going to continue in our study of this book this morning, and as we uh, open up into Micah chapter 4, maybe you've heard this phrase or seen this written in somewhere, redeem your prize. I saw this most when I was a kid. We would go to Chuck E. Cheese. We would go to, uh, there was another place we went to, DZ Discovery Zone maybe. There's several places where you go, you go to carnivals, you go to fairs, you get tickets and you can redeem them, redeem your prize. Maybe you've seen this at an entertainment venue when you've won a prize. Uh, Maybe you've heard it on the telephone when receiving a scam call. Receive your prize, redeem your prize. Maybe you've seen it online or when using a coupon or a voucher. Redeem this voucher. One of the most memorable moments of this for me is the movie Toy Story. We watched this over and over as a kid, and I did not like this movie. I think surely because of the number of times we watched it, just over and over. Well, this one scene in the movie, the toys, they kind of come to life, and they're talking and stuff, but people don't know that. And so they fall down when people aren't looking. They're alive when they're not looking. And so they make their way to this pizza restaurant to save a toy. And uh, they find themselves in this claw machine, and this claw machine is filled with these little, like, almost like a squeezable duck that squeaks, but it's little aliens themed with the, the pizza restaurant. And they get in there with the aliens, and the aliens are like, oh, the claw. And they look up at this big claw, and the, the claw determines who will go and who will stay. And they're looking forward to that claw coming down and grabbing them and pulling them up. And so it comes down and picks one up, and all the little aliens are rejoicing. They're like, he has been chosen. And he's like, farewell, friends. I'm off to a better place, not knowing that he's going to Sid's house, and, and that's, that's not good news. But to these little aliens, they see this claw, and there's a hope that they're waiting for. They're all so excited about the claw coming down and taking one of them up. Even if they are not the ones being delivered, they know eventually it'll be me, and eventually it'll be my turn. I will be redeemed as the prize. Someone will put a coin in, that claw will come down, and then I will belong to them. Even if it hasn't happened now, it will happen. And that gives them hope, even in the midst of their current situation, which is that they are stuck in a machine with no hope of escape. So related to this, here's our main idea this morning, short and simple. Present hope is grounded in future hope. We can only really have hope now because we have hope that is upcoming. Without that upcoming hope, we have no hope now. So present hope is grounded in future hope. Our current series is titled, Who is Like Our God? A wordplay from Micah's name, which means who is like Jehovah. In chapter 1, we saw a holy God ready to judge Israel's idolatry. In chapter 2, we saw a just God who puts a price on rebellion. In chapter 3, we saw an honorable God who expects and rules with integrity. And this week in chapter 4, we will see a redemptive God who redeems the broken before destroying the obstinate. So let's read together. I'm going to invite everyone to stand together for the reading of God's Word. We're going to read the Holy Word of God, Micah chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. In the famous words of all the prophets in Scripture, thus says the Lord, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. 
and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it, and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples, and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord, our God, forever endeavor. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come, the former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. Now, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished that pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor, for now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies." Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, Let her be defiled, and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples, and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, you who inspired the words that we just read, would you please now speak them powerfully into our hearts, bringing about comfort and conviction, bringing about change and conformity, Lord, as you shape us into the image of the divine Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his wonderful name that we pray all these things. Amen. Thank you, church. You can be seated. As with our previous passages in Micah, Micah 4 really comes to light most when viewed in light of what's happened in Micah 1, 2, and 3. The holy God of the universe will not look by idly when injustice and suffering is taking place. This includes oppression between people and oppression that's due to the abuse of authority. Well, as we saw last week, One of the wrong responses to bad authority is no authority. It's this idea that the system is broken, so tear it down and then everything will be fixed. Rather than tearing everything down, the Bible suggests something greater. Instead of no authority, what we need is good authority. But the problem, to flip the language of Genesis 50 verse 20, is that we have taken what God meant for good and we mean it for evil evil. We have reversed what God has established 
and distorted it and abused it, twisting authority for our own purposes. In reality, this is really the nature of all sin. We have taken what God has declared good, God has given us creation, and we warp it and abuse it for our own purposes. That's why we have terminology like drug abuse. We're taking something that has value in some way, but using it out of line with its intended purposes, just for our pleasure and enjoyment. So as we come to Micah 4, we've got all this corruption and reversal in the back of our minds, and what we see next is a writing of what is wrong. It is a reversal back. It is a restoration. In Micah chapter 4, we get a glimpse of redemption. Now the word redeem, according to one dictionary, means this. And we're going to come back to this definition throughout this sermon. To recover ownership of by paying a specified sum. To redeem. To recover ownership of by paying a specified sum some, to recover ownership. This is what God does when we are redeemed. In our sinful rebellion, we take the reins from God, but in our redemption, God takes the reins back. That's what it means to be redeemed. So today's passage will center around this idea of redemption, and we're going to see specifically two things with redemption. We're going to see a glimpse of future redemption, And then we're going to zoom back into the present and see present redemption. So first, future redemption in verses 1 through 8. The key phrase here in verse 1, it shall come to pass in the latter days. This phrase is frequently used in the Bible to refer to the end times. Sometimes it's in reference to end times events And then sometimes it's in reference to the eternal state, what heaven is going to be like, or I guess what hell is going to be like. But Micah's purpose here, as he's describing the eternal state, is what he's describing, his purpose in describing the latter days isn't just to make us hungry for it. He's not trying to say, Israel, look what you've done wrong. Look at what you've corrupted. Hey, by the way, heaven's going to be great. But, But look what you've corrupted. That doesn't make any sense in light of everything that he has said. We have to remember chapters 1, 2, and 3. Did you notice in verse 1 of chapter 4, it starts with the imagery of where chapter 3 left off. In chapter 3, verse 12, there's this phrase, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. He's saying the temple will be done away with and overgrown. It will be forgotten. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, we see this same phrase, the mountain of the house of the Lord. We also see here this repeated theme of high places and mountains. What Micah is doing is contrasting Israel's current condition with the condition of things in the latter days. Though God will descend and tread on the mountains and high places, though he will tread on Jerusalem, Though the house of the Lord shall become a wooded height, though Israel shall be brought low, chapter 4, it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. It shall be lifted up above the hills. This is the language of reversal. 
God is reversing what is happening to Israel. In essence, this is really the story of the whole Bible. God, in the beginning, created all things, and all things were good. Then, in the introduction of sin, man has sinned and now fallen. And now we are in this lowly state, but there is coming a day when God will turn the tide again, and everything will be restored just like it was before. We are currently in this lowly state, but God is flipping everything on its head. And he does that through Jesus Christ. Jesus was sent to pay the price to redeem his creation. And then in the end, everything will be restored. That's what we're seeing here. It's a grand reversal. There's two aspects of this future redemption here. The first is God's redeemed rule. Look at the beginning of verse 2 with me. It says, Many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. God's law shall go forth. God shall judge even the most distant, the strongest nations. He shall decide between them. The corrupted authority we saw in chapter 3 is being reversed. God is recovering ownership of. But that's not all. There's a second aspect of this future redemption, and that is man's redeemed relationships. So this relationship with God is restored, and then this relationship between men are restored. Tied to God's redeemed rule is man's redeemed relationships with one another. If you'll notice, right after this description in verse 3 about God being judge, what does it say happens? They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. They will sit under the fig tree and they will sit underneath their vines and enjoy the fruit of their labor. Why? Because their relationships have been restored. Right after God's rule is restored, everything else falls into place. This is vital this morning. God's rule is the linchpin that holds the entire created order together. When you think about the fall, what was it that set everything into shambles? It was rebellion against God's authority. God said, do not eat. They did. Everything fell to pieces. Now there's cancer. Now there's sickness. Now the rose, the beautiful rose, has thorns on it, and I can't just grab it. There's pain, there's disorder. Now husband and wife, there's dissension between one another. Now there's murder. That all stemmed from rejection of God's rule. All of it. That is the linchpin that holds God's entire created order together. God didn't design everything to function well without him. And he did that on purpose. So when God's rule and authority are rejected, everything becomes unhitched and wrecks. The example in the text that's given is war. The only reason it exists is because we've rejected God's authority. So once God's rule is reestablished, once it's restored, that side effect goes away. Everything begins to fix now. 
This chain reaction continues in verse 4. Because God is judge and there's no more war, every man sits under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. Why is it that that happens? Look in verse 4. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. And then in verse 5, just as people walk in the name of their gods, God's people on that day will finally perfectly walk in the name of the Lord forever and ever. It is vital that we understand the order of operations here. Kristen is getting to that uh, time in school doing algebra and that sort of thing and order of operations, and it matters. There's some things that doesn't matter what the order is. Then there's some things that it does matter what the order is. And if you do it out of order, you're going to get the answer wrong. And it's the same thing here. Everyone wants verse 4. Everybody wants this. Look at this. Everyone is going to enjoy the fruit of their labor. No one will ever make them afraid. No more war. No more fear. When you look around the world today, we see fear everywhere. Fear of an invasion just on the drop of a hat. Fear of nuclear Armageddon. What if someone, the right person, gets his hands on the button and he doesn't have the ability to control his temper? Everyone wants verse 4. When we read verse 4, what we're getting is a glimpse of paradise. Everybody wants paradise. Who doesn't want paradise? However, true paradise is not possible apart from the end of verse 4. The mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Many people want paradise at the expense of God's rule, not underneath it. But that cannot happen because the former depends on the latter. Many people want paradise without the Lord. They want light God. They want easy God. They don't want Lord God. They don't want King God. I want paradise without the King. There is no paradise without the King. There is none. This is the very nature of sin itself. Yet again, the enemy in our flesh convinces us you can have paradise without the King. You can have it. Here, try it. And for a time, sin may feel very good in that moment. But in the end, it only leads to destruction. We see it around us. People who get trapped in their sin. And they claw and claw and feel like they can't escape because they are too far in. And what promised happiness did not return happiness. It just made an alcoholic. It just broke a marriage. We cannot be happy apart from God's rule. It doesn't work. Sin produces death and destruction. Whether or not we see it in that moment, it will come. So similar to last week, we see in our passage this morning that the opposite of bad authority is not no authority. Notice in the eternal state, God doesn't get rid of authority. He establishes himself as the perfect authority. So no authority is still bad. Only good authority is good. And we see that good authority produces all the good that we want to enjoy in life. We all want peace. That's impossible without good authority. We all want prosperity. That's impossible without good authority. Good authority gives life to those who are underneath it. 
It helps them to flourish and to be all that they can be. Likewise, if we want to experience less heartache in life, we have to understand that this can't happen apart from God's rule in our lives. God's rule is the foundation of life and prosperity. When that relationship is restored, every other relationship is affected by it. We cannot expect to have happy marriages, happy families, happy churches, happy communities, a happy nation while living in rebellion to God's rule. It doesn't work that way. It is designed to not work that way. This is one of the whole central themes of the book of Proverbs. When you live with godly wisdom, what happens? Life tends to be better. It's not a promise, but it's a general rule of thumb. Well, what happens when you live opposed to godly wisdom? Life doesn't work out better. Destruction tends to come. When we can't be quick to listen or slow to speak or slow to anger with our spouses, we shouldn't expect peace. That's not how it works. When we can't love our enemies, we shouldn't expect peace. When we can't suffer for righteousness' sake, we shouldn't expect peace. When we can't cast all of our cares or anxieties upon the Lord Jesus, we shouldn't expect peace. Put simply, we should not wait until the latter days to walk in the name of the Lord our God. We can have a foretaste of this established good authority in our lives now. We can experience these blessings now. We must decide for eternity to begin now and not then. Jesus has made this possible. When he came, he would use this phrase, the kingdom of heaven is coming. It is near. It is at hand. And then sometimes there was the phrase, the kingdom of heaven is here. So when at Jesus' coming, the kingdom of heaven has started, and there is a degree to which we can enjoy the benefits of that kingdom now, even though part of it is still to remain in the future. If you came on Sunday nights, I use this phrase, already but not yet. We already get some of the benefits, but we not yet get some of the other benefits. The king has already come, and Jesus calls us to submit to him now. In verses 6 through 8, we get one final glimpse of this future redemption. We get to see who is redeemed. And again, it's a wonderful reversal. It says, look at these, these terms that it uses. The lame, those who have been driven away, those whom I have afflicted. And we see that these will be made the remnant, a strong nation in verse 7. They will experience the former dominion the kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. This language is a reference to the former kingship of David. Israel was always dreaming of the day that the reign of David would be re-restored. It's like that one leader that they look at all through history, it passes, it passes, and they keep looking back. If only things were like they were when David was king. That's what they're looking forward to. Even when Jesus came, they were hoping this will be the man to restore us to that rule. That's what the language here is suggesting. This former rule will be restored. Just as Israel prospered under the righteous rule of David, all of the redeemed in the latter days will prosper under the perfect rule of Jesus Christ. The proud, the arrogant, the stubborn, the obstinate, they 
will not. They will not be redeemed. It is not for them. It will be the lame, the weak, and the humble. Redemption is for those who need it and know it, not for those who need it and don't. Redemption is not for those who don't know their need for it. Listen to Luke chapter 5, verses 30 through 32. The Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, that's Jesus' disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The problem isn't that some of them needed a physician and some of them didn't. They all needed the physician. The problem is that some admitted it and some did not. That's the key. The key to humble submission is humble admission. The strong, the upright, the wise, they will not submit to God's rule because they won't admit their need to do so. It is only those who admit their own weaknesses who will submit to authority. Pride and submission rarely coexist. You will not submit to any authority if you don't believe you need to. That's why we see this language here in 6 through 8. Well, now we get to present redemption, verses 9 through 13. It says, Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished that pain seized you like a woman in labor? So after giving this future glimpse of redemption where God's rule is reestablished, human relationships have all been fixed, Micah snaps back to the present reality in Israel. And he does so with three rhetorical questions in verse 9 here. He's basically saying, well, why are you crying? Don't you have a godly king to save you? That, that's kind of the, the push of the verse here. His point is clear. Israel, you're suffering because you've rejected your true king. Your king right now is not leading over you like God would. And God told them this would happen. When they said all those years ago, we want a king like the other nations. And what were they told? Well, you have a king. God is your king. They said, no, no, we want a king we can see. We want a man king. And they were told, you do not really want this, but I will give it to you. And now they are reaping what they have sown. But notice here that God does not leave them in their pain. Their pain is described as labor pains, contractions leading up to childbirth. As a child is about to be born, these contractions happen more and more and more, and that's a sign. Life is coming. Life is coming. Why did Micah use labor pains to describe the pain here? Because he wants them to know there will be relief. That pain is leading to life. There will be no life without that pain first. This present state that they're in will lead to a present redemption. So in light of that, there's two aspects of the nature of redemption here that we need to see. Number one, redemption is needed. Redemption is needed. The fact that redemption exists means there is something that we need to be redeemed from. 
We see that in verses 9 and 10 here. Israel is hurting. Verse 10, writhe and groan. The imagery is of someone on the ground in pain, shriveled up without relief. My wife, uh, we were in Ohio doing some work for a company in California. You can talk to me about that later, and we'll go into all that. But we were staying in a hotel room. We had a show to do in a couple of days, and uh, Stacy goes to the bathroom, and then uh, I'm working on the computer, and suddenly she's like, I hear a kind of moaning in the bathroom. Like, are you okay? And she wasn't feeling good, and I went in there, and she was in so much pain in her stomach that every time she even tried to get off the floor, she would just start throwing up. So much pain. So the only thing she could do was just lay on the ground and shrivel up. So, of course, I'm on the phone. I'm calling 911. We don't know where we're at. We're in the middle of Ohio. We need to get an ambulance here. I think she's dying. She thinks she's dying. And it turns out later, it was either kidney stones or a kidney infection. We don't know which one it was to this day because she was pregnant at the time. But she thought she was going to die. And all she could do to relieve herself was just to shrivel up and just not move. And that would reduce the pain as much as possible. That's the imagery we're seeing here in Israel. She's in pain and she can't help it. All she can do is just shrivel up. But God gives this glimpse. He doesn't leave them there. The reason he allows them to go through this is he wants them to see that they have a need for redemption. He lets Israel know that they're going to go into Babylon, but then after you go to Babylon, in verse 10, there you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. There is no redemption without a need for it. And there is no redemption, no redemption without recognition of that need. One of the reasons that we often struggle so much is because we don't recognize what we need to be redeemed from. We want the answer without admitting what the problem is. For ownership to be reclaimed by God means that it was first lost. And Israel needed to know that she had lost that rule and authority in her life. She needed to know that she had rejected God as her king. And the only way for her to know that was for her to receive the due penalty for her rebellion. Parents understand this so, so well. Sometimes you want your kids to learn a lesson the easy way, and they just won't. So what do you do? You make them suffer the consequences for their error so that maybe they'll learn it the hard way. Or maybe you decide to do the easy thing. Don't let them learn the hard way. Do it for them. And you watch them grow up and never learn their lesson, become adults, and then struggle for the rest of their lives. We don't do that, do we? We would rather them suffer now a little bit than suffer later forever. Such it is with Israel. Israel's troubles look severe, but God knows this is redeeming for me a people. They will recognize I am not their God. When Babylon has them in captivity and he's hauling them away, they will know at that point I am not their God yet but I will rescue you. I will come back for you. All those who are humbled, I will come and redeem. Have you ever noticed that we are most aware and receptive to God when we are at our lowest points in life? Maybe this is you this morning. 
things are just not going well right now. You have never been in a better place to see and hear from the Lord than you were in right now. It's like whenever you go outside and you look up at the sky at night and you're in a city where there's lights all around you, you really don't get a good glimpse of the stars. But when you were in complete and utter darkness, removed from society, and you go outside and you look up at the night sky, it is so bright. You were in a perfect place to see the light of Christ. Do not pass up your opportunity. As hard as our low moments are, Later, we typically come to appreciate those times because we recognize that's what I needed to see what I needed. So redemption is needed. Then, redemption is provided. Verses 11 through 13 kind of read like a movie scene. Now, many nations are assembled against you saying, let her be defiled, let our eyes gaze upon Israel, but they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan. It's almost like in the movie where the good guys are surrounded, everyone is gathered around, and they're like, okay, this is it, we're done, it's over. They close their eyes, and then suddenly the bad guys don't pounce on them yet. And you open your eyes, and you look around, the hero has come in, and he has saved the day. This is verses 11 through 13. The nations are gathering around and licking their lips. Oh, this is it. Their God is nothing. We got him now. And they don't know God is just using you, and when he's done, you will be judged for your sin as well. Justice will come, and they don't know it. Redemption is provided. What this means for Israel is that her pain will only be temporary. If you're a Christian this morning, if you were in pain, your pain is temporary. Now, I can't tell you how temporary. I'm not saying that all pain will go away immediately. Remember, already, but not yet. You may not yet have the relief that you want to have. That may be delayed for a time, but your pain is ultimately temporary. Though it seems like a long and hard road now, in the midst of your pain, 100,000 years into the future, this life will have seemed like a mere breath in view of an eternity that has only just begun. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Hear these words this morning. Light, momentary affliction. Our affliction isn't light and momentary in itself. It is light and momentary in light of eternity. It is a matter of comparison. When you break a bone and it needs to be reset, that pain is light and momentary, not in itself, but in view of what would happen had that not happened. It is light and momentary in comparison to eternity. 
our glimpse of our future redemption gives us a comparison for our current affliction so that we can treat them as being light and momentary now. We cannot do this apart from our future hope. God did this for Israel in Micah chapter 4. That's what he's doing. Here's the glimpse of the future. Now let me tell you how I will sustain you today. And this is what he's communicating to us today. But there's one more truth this morning. Redemption is not only a matter of peace, but of wrath. Redemption is not just a matter of peace, but of wrath. Israel's redemption from her enemies means judgment against them. They would be destroyed for their sin. Israel is strengthened here at the end. Her horn is made iron. Her hoofs are bronze. And you shall beat in pieces many peoples and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. Condemnation awaits those who are not redeemed. To be redeemed is to be saved from condemnation. Because of my present ownership, I'm condemned. But once I am redeemed, I escape condemnation. If we do not belong to God, we are his enemies and are subject to his wrath. What Jesus did in redeeming us was he stepped in the way and took God's wrath in the place of those whom God redeems. Jesus took it for us. Remember the definition of redeem, to recover ownership of by paying a specified sum. How is redemption provided for us? The blood of Jesus Christ is the specified sum for our redemption. The specified sum of the blood of Jesus Christ is shed for the forgiveness of sins for all who admit their need and repent and submit to him as both Savior from sin and Lord over their lives. Just as our present hope is grounded in a future hope, our future redemption is grounded in the work of Jesus Christ. Without Christ, you have no future redemption and you have no present hope. So church, may we submit to God now so that we can enjoy a foretaste of what awaits us in eternity. And may we endure our present affliction with hope, because we have a future redemption that has been secured in Jesus Christ. This morning, if you do not know Jesus Christ, hear me clearly, you have no future redemption. If he is not your Lord, you have no hope, because that is the hope, Christ our King. If you have not yet made Christ your king, but you are ready to do so, you can do so literally right now where you're seated. You can also come and see me after the service, and I would love to talk with you about it. If you don't want to do that here, I'm up here during the week. Call up here, come see me. would love to talk with you about that. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Micah chapter 4. We thank you, Lord, that you give us, sprinkled throughout your word, these tiny glimpses of eternity. That you have sprinkled this hope for us so that we might be able to endure our present affliction, our present turmoil and trials 
Lord, they don't feel light and momentary. So thank you for giving us this wonderful weight of glory with which we might compare what we're going through now. Thank you for giving us, Lord, something to see the invisible so that we might not be overwhelmed with the visible. Lord, help us to look forward to what we cannot yet see. Help us to live in that reality now, not waiting for your rule to be reestablished fully in our lives, but submitting to you as King and Lord now so that we might reap the benefits of that, Lord. Help us to be a means for reestablishing good authority all around us, submitting to it when we see it, helping to correct it when we don't. Lord, give us the words to speak to others who have rejected your authority in their lives, who have rebelled against you, so that they might come into the fold with us and they might be redeemed as well. Lord, please sustain us, your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.